Good morning, North Park Church, and to all who are listening in on this program together. We are beginning today a series of studies and messages on the book of Acts. This is a series I have been preparing for for some time, and I'm excited to get underway. There's so much in this portion of Scripture to instruct us and inspire us to live for Jesus, to grasp our place in history, and to build the church of our living King. By no means is this going to be an attempt for verse-by-verse exposition of the text. Instead, as we have done with Isaiah, we are going to look at the prominent themes that come out again and again in the book of Acts and its 28 chapters. So first, we must say a few things about the book itself. The author is the physician Luke, who became a companion and a co-missionary of the Apostle Paul. In the second half of the book of Acts, Luke is a character as well as the author. So no surprise that this is the same Luke that wrote the gospel by that name. And there in Luke chapter 1, he told us that he was writing with a preeminent concern for accuracy, and accuracy as defined by the historian. Luke 1 verse 1, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, O excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught." So this same approach marks his second volume, which we know of as the book of Acts. It is essentially a book of history. It is not written as a fable that conveys a certain moral lesson or philosophy. Acts is written as history. This should be obvious as we read it. Luke uses real names, real places, real dates, real numbers. As wonderful as the writings of Tolkien and Lewis may be, their stories are not conveying actual history, nor do they purport to. Luke He's not taking us to Middle-earth with hobbits and wizards and talking animals. He writes of Jerusalem and Galilee and Samaria. He writes about real governors and real emperors and high priests. He writes about real men and women, the apostles, for example, who would, for the most part, have still been alive when Luke's account of the early days of the church was written and was accepted by the church as accurate. This is so very important. Christianity is a faith rooted in history. It's rooted in real events. Without those real events being real events, Christianity becomes something silly or even obscene. Sadly, there are plenty who are blind to this reality and therefore try to hold to a form of our faith while denying the historical grounding of it. You'll hear from many sides, what really counts is love, not all the things people fight over. What religion you choose really doesn't matter. So whether Jesus is real or imagined, whether he died an atoning death or not, whether he rose from the grave or not, all of that, they tell us, is inconsequential. It is the ideas Jesus taught. Well, some of them anyway, that we like and are committed to. Therefore, who needs the doctrine of the incarnation? Who needs the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement? Who needs the doctrine of an actual physical resurrection? We can do church without all of that. We can be Christians without regard to those things. That's the idea. The writings of Luke, however, they stand in defiant opposition to such a notion and remind us that Christian faith, it's historical or it's counterfeit. 
Now, the book of Acts is going to be a record of the establishment, the growth, the spread of the early church. But the writer begins by linking all that is going to follow with the central affirmations of Christianity, which affirmations center on, focus on, and spotlight the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pick up the book of Luke, or book of Acts, I should say, chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Luke says that his first book was about what Jesus began to do, suggesting that the second volume now that we're covering was continuing that same story, relaying what Jesus continued to do. And, and just right here, he mentions his ascension into heaven, his commissioning of the apostles, his resurrection, his appearances, the historical reality surrounding Jesus. Those are the things that form the foundation of everything recorded in the book of Acts, everything in history and in the church. Luke writes history, and Jesus is at the center of it all. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His future return in glory. The new events Luke records in Acts, they're just part of a bigger picture in which Jesus is at the center as well. It is fantastically appropriate that we still build our calendars around the life of Jesus so that we are now living in the year 2020 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. But what is happening in the first century, as Luke records it, is a critical transition in redemptive history. The long-awaited Messiah has come. He has kept the law perfectly as the second Adam. He has performed miracles to authenticate his person and his message. He has died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has risen in triumph over the grave. He's about to ascend to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But before he does, there is this transfer of redemptive responsibility to the apostles. They become the Lord's emissaries, the ambassadors of his kingdom. And so we read in Acts 1 verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the gift of the Spirit was to be their equipping for the work to which they were appointed. And you're very likely familiar with verse 8, where it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And we will come back to this, but understand what follows right there. Verse 9, And after, these, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. <laughs> so, whoa, it's like dad is gone and it's just us kids now. And it's time to grow up. It's time to figure this out. The angels confirmed what they should already have known, that the king was going away for a while. And he had a job for them to do while he was gone, but someday he's coming back. But the now belongs to the apostles, to the church, to you and to me. The coach has put us into the game. 
And are we ready? And in this case, the coach actually said, no, not, not yet, but you go in anyway and I will give you what you need. The best sports analogy would be baseball. The manager sends you in to pinch hit at a critical point in the game and says that as you wait in the on-deck circle, he is going to give you a special bat that will change you from Bob Euchre to Babe Ruth. But note carefully, what is the essence of the job, the, the mission, the redemptive responsibility that would be theirs? Verse 8, he says, you will be my, what, is, what does it say? You will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? Testifies to what he has seen or heard. Witnesses, they're not usually heroes, but, but in certain contexts they might be, right? When it might be dangerous as it was in, in this case. That's why our word martyr comes from the Greek word for witness, martyrio. Those who are willing to speak the truth, they may wind up dead. Beth and I watched uh, a few months ago a documentary on Neil Armstrong, who was the first man, the astronaut, to walk on the moon. And after his return to Earth, Neil was a worldwide hero, but he felt silly about that because he understood that his was just one single role among many thousands who contributed to getting us to the moon. And his role was probably not the most challenging. Probably the MVPs of the space race were the brilliant NASA scientists. In a sense, lots of people could have done what Neil did, but the astronauts get the glory. Why? Well, one reason is that they undertake the risk. If things go wrong, the scientists aren't the ones that die. The scientists aren't the ones that get stuck up there on the moon with no way to get back. So yeah, being a witness involves a certain degree of risk. I get that. It can be heroic, but it's not terribly complicated, as you might want to consider it. It's not rocket science. You simply speak what you have heard and seen and experienced. Now, notice the possessive pronoun in verse 8. Before the word witness, you read what? The little pronoun, my. Of what does one bear witness? And oh, again, this is so simple, but so important. We bear witness of him. It's all about Christ. We can easily see what the apostles understood themselves to be saying. First chance Peter got to preach here in Acts chapter 2, here's what he said, Acts 2 verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, or raised him up again. So stop there for a moment. What do you see? Peter, in this first ever Christian sermon, speaks of the life Jesus lived, the miracles he performed, which validated his claims. And then he refers to his death, the role of God in it, the role of sinners in it, the fact that he truly died, and then the clincher, the astounding claim that God raised him up from the grave. And it is this last point that Peter dwells on. It becomes the main point of his short sermon in verse 32. He says, we are witnesses of these things, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. This Jesus God raised up again. We're all witnesses to this. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now ponder what that means for us. Ponder what that means for the church, for the mission of the church. I thank the Lord for Taylor Brown, that he has been the man leading our youth ministry for about five years now. And when we were searching for Taylor, I found myself 
so very discouraged by some of the applicants we were getting. I encountered in the other applicants um, some things that were very distressing for me to see and people aspiring to leadership in the church. One young man came to us from a local church where he had been involved in the youth ministry for three years. And I asked him uh, what he would say if he had opportunity to speak at length with a young person in his group who was unchurched, likely an unbeliever, how he, he would convey the message. What is the message he would like them to grasp? And, and he said to me, I just want them to know God loves them. And I said, that's great. Uh, you want to amplify that a bit? No, nope, that's just it. Just want them to know God loves them. And I asked him once again if there was anything else he might want to include in what he conveyed. And he said, nope, that, that's the whole thing. God loves and, and I wanted to cry. No mention of Jesus. No mention of his atoning death. No mention of his resurrection. No mention of a gracious reigning king. No mention of needing to repent and believe and follow and learn of him. There was no witness for Jesus coming forth at all. What religion is that? Well, that's not Christianity. It's alien to the book of Acts, but I fear that this young man was hardly exceptional. If I were to ask people to fill in a blank, consider what I might hear. Here it is. The gospel, or Christianity, is a message of blank. What could you put in there? Oh my, so, so many things could go in that blank. Good things. Hope, love, grace, peace, reconciliation, healing, salvation, life, pardon, cleansing. All, all of that is true. All of it. The gospel is many things, but of all these, they must, must, they must connect back to Jesus and his story. If our message does not connect to Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his rule, his return, then what are we doing? We aren't being his witnesses, and we're not connecting people to the true source of power. Luke and the apostles, they give us history, which is his story. Hallelujah. Well, let's go back to see more about that story from the book of Acts. In Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, he focuses on the idea that Jesus is risen, and therefore we know that he is Lord. That is where the resurrection points us. Christ is alive. He reigns now in heaven. And then in the next chapter of Acts, Peter and John are going to the temple where they encounter a lame man, and they heal him. And a crowd gathers around this, and so Peter preaches once again. And even though he preached an Easter message in the first or second chapter, he does the same thing. He goes back to that same idea. He reminds them of Jesus, whom they insisted be put to death by Pontius Pilate, even after he was acquitted. Chapter 3, verse 15, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Real events in real time history. That is his story, the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Well, shall we go to the next chapter? Peter and John are arrested for healing in the name of an executed criminal. So they go before the Jewish court and Peter pulls out the same line. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which the builders, or was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Now, by the time you get to chapter 5, you would think Peter would have a fresh word from God, but nope. Chapter 5, verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of 
these things. Who are we? Well, we're certainly not the heroes of the story. We're certainly not the genius founders of the church. We're not the cause of the miracles. We are just witnesses. We don't need to be brilliant, just faithful, and in certain contexts, courageous. Well, now let's skip over to Acts chapter 10. This is quite some time later. And by Acts 10, surely you think Peter's message has developed, matured, evolved, become more sophisticated. Here in Acts 10, he's actually preaching to a different audience. It's a bunch of Gentiles. It's a different culture. And so we need to alter the message to fit the culture, right? Well, let's see what he does. Acts 10, verse 39. He says, We are witnesses, there it is again, of all the things he did both in the land of, Jeruz of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witness who, witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And apart from uh, not blaming them, the Gentiles, for the death of Jesus, it's the same message. It's the old, old story of Jesus and his glory. So Peter is stuck in a rut, I guess. Well, let's check out the new preacher in town. There's this other guy who comes along in the book of Acts by the name of Paul. The book of Acts is a lot about Paul after chapter 9, surely his message is going to be distinct from that of Peter's, right? Well, let's see. In Acts 13, Paul is in Antioch. It's a Gentile area, but a Gentile area with a good number of Jews living there. So there is a synagogue. So Paul shows up there and preaches, oddly enough, about Jesus and what happened in Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 26. Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one who the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel, and now we are here to bring you this good news. And what was the good news? Not just that God loves you, but that in his love. He sent a Savior who kept the law for us, who died for us, who rose for us, who lives now for us, who is coming back for us. This is the good news. It is the Jesus story. It is His story, which is what we are given in the book of Acts, and it is marvelous. So let's consider how else this may relate to us. There's a church planting network that I greatly appreciate that calls itself the Acts 29 Network. Now, why that name, Acts 29? Well, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, so Acts 29 suggests that the story is continuing with us. We are still in that period between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. Redemptive responsibility, it's still with us, the Lord's church. The Lord is writing more story and he is doing it through us now. 
We are part of his story. So ponder, how did we get from Acts 1 to 2020? There were just 120 at that first meeting there in Jerusalem. The first church, small potatoes for sure, but Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And what happened? Well, here we are now. Churches by the millions, Christian books, more than we can count. There's podcasts and there's music and there's extravaganzas for Jesus. There are Christian schools, thousands of Christian schools. There's hospitals and orphanages and counseling centers and conferences. Some entire nations are officially Christian in some way. Our biggest holiday celebrates the birth of Jesus. Then there is Easter and there's Good Friday. Friends, the world has changed. How could all of this have happened without a real Jesus, without a real cross, without a real resurrection. Then you think of how human existence is so different now. More people live longer and healthier lives than ever before. More are living free. There is less poverty. There is less hunger. There's less war than ever before. Less slavery and less murder. There's more hospitals. There's more orphan care. I don't deny there's plenty of room for improvement, but the world has certainly changed for the better. Now, am I connecting that to the three years that Jesus ministered some 2,000 years ago? You bet I am. How could all of this have happened without a real Lord, without a real Jesus and a real cross and a real resurrection, without Jesus graciously reigning in heaven, empowering his church to bear witness of him? You know, there are certain persons you meet whose entire life seems to be centered on one episode, one event, one feature of their lives. I thought of that watching the Neil Armstrong show. At age 34, the man walked on the moon. I mean, where, where do you go from there? Everything else in your life traces back to that one event. Others have a similar story of some kind. They were wrongly imprisoned. They beat cancer. They were the only survivor of a train, plane crash. They, they won a national championship. And they tell the story over and over and over again. So when someone thinks of them, it's that one event that they think of. Oh, he's the guy who, she's the one who... I think of musicians who have one mega hit. We call them one-hit wonders. And every time they play, folks want to hear that one particular song. Hey, Luther, let's hear you sing A Mighty Fortress. Don McLean has to play and sing American Pie. I mean, who is Don McLean? The only answer is he's the guy who sang American Pie. Who are the Gettys? Oh, well, they're, they're the ones that wrote uh, In Christ Alone. Well, now we can make a final point out of that because I would ask, who are you? Who am I? In the, in the last year or so, a previously unknown relative has started sending our family some genealogical information that we didn't know about before. I've learned way more than ever before about my aunts and uncles and great aunts and great uncles and grandparents and great grandparents and so on. It's, it's interesting, I guess, but I find my sense of who I am is not found in some genealogical record. Where is it found? Well, my friends, it's found right here. My personal history is centered in the same place that all of history is. Who am I? I'm a witness. I'm an heir. I'm a servant. I'm a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life for me. So I am righteous. He died a substitutionary death for me, so I am pardoned. He rose from the grave, so I am immortal. He's coming back for me, so I am secure and I'm happy. 
the Getty sing in Christ alone. And that is one song I would be happy to identify with. Who I am. It's not about the chance meeting of Francis and Martha in 1945. It is all about the God-planned work of the Son of God in the first century A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, the center and the king of history and of our lives and of his church. The first theme of the book of Acts, Jesus. The subject of the message of Acts, the end of it all and the foundation of everything that happens. It is his story and it is good that we sing of him as we close.